Welcome to the Truth Lover video podcast, although today it's an audio podcast presented by Love and Truth Party. I am your host, Will Pye, author, speaker, transformational coach, and founder of Love and Truth Party. Love and Truth Party is a self-organizing, self-replicating community and movement of love and awakening, a wisdom school facilitating health, healing, and happiness. Find us and join our mailing list at loveandtruthparty.org. We exist to empower the deep realization and integration of unit of consciousness of one human being and to inspire action in the world from this clarity as New Earth Ninjas, our playful avatar. Our projects include distributing a million love letters from the universe, inviting people to receive the love and care in these and within the happiness hacks and other free resources found on loveandtruthparty.org. Our online courses, The Alchemy of Cancer and The Alchemy of Depression, empower the creation of health, healing, and happiness. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Lissa Rankin. Lissa Rankin, MD, is a New York Times bestselling author of Mind Over Medicine, The Fear Cure, and The Anatomy of a Calling. Lissa is a physician, speaker, founder of the Whole Health Medicine Institute, and mystic and she is passionate about what makes people optimally healthy and what predisposes them to illness. She's on a mission to merge science and spirituality in a way that not only facilitates the health of the individual, but also uplifts the health of the collective. Bridging between seemingly disparate worlds, Lisa is a connector, collaborator, curator, and amplifier, broadcasting not only her unique visionary ideas, but also those of cutting-edge visionaries she discerns and trusts, especially in the field of her latest research into sacred medicine. Lissa has starred in two national public television specials and also leads workshops both online and at retreat centers like Esalen and Kripalu. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her daughter. She blogs at lissarankin.com and posts regularly on Facebook, and her latest book is The Daily Flame, which you can pre-order today. Wonderful to have you here with us today, Lisa. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's such, such a pleasure to be here. And we having, we're having a little chat about what we might want to explore and what's alive for you, and you shared a little bit of some conversations you're having with people in your community. And so we talked about uh, self-healing and following your inner pilot and I think broadly beyond that living a life where we're following our inner pilot light and perhaps just to begin you can help our listeners uh, understand what you mean when you say uh, following our inner pilot light what's this referring to well I'm using a metaphor here for uh, something that every spiritual tradition has a different word for and so in order to avoid uh, choosing sides I kind of started calling this divine spark, this kind of essence of God consciousness, of whatever you want to call it from your own tradition, Christ consciousness, Buddha nature, uh, you know, like I said, every tradition mm-hmm. has their own description of it. And the, the inner pilot light metaphor kind of came to me because, um, you know, a lot of people feel like they don't have access to this part of themselves. They're experiencing maybe a dark night of the soul. 
And so they feel like there's no light in there. <laughs> My pilot light has gone out. But unlike kind of stove pilot lights, which can every now and then go, actually go out, I think of this as the spark that is the life force that animated you, you know, from the moment you became a, a, a being in form and, you know, will animate you until you are no longer in this body and that perhaps we come from the great flame and we will go back to the great flame and for a little while we we think we're a little spark and we call ourselves whatever we call ourselves and we are that unique individual expression that's mm -hmm. not the same right so we are it's the paradox again we are one and i am different than you mm -hmm. and so i think of the inner pilot light as the unique like sacred quality of precious individuality that is separate and that we can celebrate our separateness in this kind of playful uh, way of, of existing in the world, knowing that we were once the great flame, but then also celebrating what the Hindus would call the sort of divine feminine or the goddess, the Shakti. So I think of the inner pilot light kind of as that Shakti, but it's also connected. It's like the portal to mm -hmm. the one. Mm -hmm. So I love, can I read something real quick? This is Mark Nepo, and I love the way he's described this because I can't describe it better than this. Each person is born with an unencumbered spot, free of expectation and regret, free of ambition and embarrassment, free of fear and worry, an umbilical spot of grace where we were each first touched by God. To know this spot of inwardness is to know who we are, not by surface markers of identity, not by where we work or what we wear or how we like to be addressed, but by feeling our place in relation to the infinite and by inhabiting it. This is a hard, lifelong task, for the nature of becoming is a constant filming over of where we begin, while the nature of being is a constant erosion of what is not essential. Each of us lives in the midst of this ongoing tension, growing tarnished or covered over, only to be worn back to that incorruptible spot of grace at our core. When the film is worn, th worn through, we have moments of enlightenment, moments of wholeness, moments of satori, as the Zen sages term it, moments of clear living when inner meets outer, moments of full integrity of being, moments of complete oneness. And whether the veil, the film is a veil of culture, of memory, of mental or religious training, of trauma or sophistication, the removal of that film and the restoration of that timeless spot of grace is the goal of all therapy and education. Regardless of subject matter, this is the only thing worth teaching, how to uncover that original center and how to live there once it is restored. We call the filming over a deadening of heart and the process of return, whether brought about through suffering or love, is how we unlearn our way back to God. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. That. That. Thank you, Mark Nepo, for <laughs> trying to explain what, uh, although I'm a writer who's been writing books for 10 years, this, the, the, this kind of ineffable, numinous quality of our beingness is really hard to put language to, and he did it perfectly. <laughs> yeah, it's the ongoing challenge of the writer, isn't it, especially with such... Uh such terms and such depth to, to, to bring words. And I agree, Mark's done a pretty outstanding job there. And <laughs> you were speaking of uh, bringing that into sort of the, the practical 
it's, it seems silly to say to bring it into the practical utility, but within the space of health and healing, I think you were talking about connecting with this essence, connecting with this inner pilot light, with that divine spark as a way of living life in, in general and, and broadly. And to dial into that specific, when we're on a, a journey of creating physical health or, or, or emotional healing, this seems to be a really, really key and perhaps underemphasized piece of that process of, of self-healing. You were talking about a conversation you were having where someone was frustrated or disappointed that they hadn't successfully yet created that self-healing. And I wonder if you can speak to what you've observed in, in, in your own journey and as a professional, how important, what role does that inner pilot light play on a journey mm. of health and healing? Well, I, I think it's fundamental. Uh, in my book, Mind Over Medicine, and in my first two TED Talks, I talked about what I call the whole health cairn, which is a wellness model. And at its foundation, at the base of this wellness model, which is modeled after like a stack of stones, like balanced stones, like uh, mm -hmm. people call it a cairn. And the foundation stone is the inner pilot light. And it's basically talking about how in order to optimize what I call whole health, then we have to be in balance with our inner pilot light, in alignment with our inner pilot light in our relationships, our work, our sex lives, our creativity, our spiritual lives our mental health, our environment, our relationship to money. And the, yes, we can take care of the body and we can eat the right things and we can work out with our personal trainers and we can do all of the, you know, take a bunch of supplements. But that is one, one stone of 10 mm. in the whole health care. And those other nine stones usually get neglected in the conventional medical system. And so, you know, I come from a background as a Western medical doctor, trained at places like Duke and Northwestern, and my father was also a physician. So the whole idea of self-healing was not even on my radar. Mm. I mean, I was, by the time I was 33 years old, I was taking seven drugs for a whole host of chronic health conditions that my doctors assured me I would have to take for the rest of my life. Mm. And so it didn't even occur to me to challenge their authority because I believed in the system. And I think that's pretty common. Like I was very mainstream in that way. I was raised in a strict Christian church, which, you know, Jesus could facilitate healings, but it wasn't something you could do yourself. Mm -hmm. And I was raised in the very strict dogma of conventional medicine, which is that the doctor knows best and has 12 years of training and is an expert. And if you're a wise human being, if you're sick, then you're going to give your power away to the doctor and let the doctor tell you what to do without questioning it or challenging it or filtering it through the wisdom and knowing of your inner pilot light. So, you know, I remember somebody uh, giving me a copy of some new age book when I was a doctor and it was like, you can heal yourself. And I was like, ha that's so cute. I was amused. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I looked at it and it was like this, list of health conditions you could look up and uh, oh if your neck is sore then here's what it means and all of this stuff and I was like okay that's so <laughs> juvenile right mm -hmm. they have no idea and I've gone to school forever so that I know your body better than you do Will so surely I know what's best for you better than you do and it was really quite arrogant I feel quite embarrassed uh, at, at kind of how I approached things 
back in those days. But equally so, when I was the patient, I gave my power to the authorities, the same way I expected patients to give it to me, give their authority to me. So I really have developed a great curiosity and fascination with and also gratitude and like immense awe, like immense respect for this aspect of myself, which has guided my own journey. I was off of all of my drugs within a year of doing the first thing my inner pilot light told me to do, which was quit my job as a doctor in the hospital. <laughs> uh, and I had no idea. I had a newborn baby and a husband who wasn't working and I, you know, I had a mortgage and medical school debt and no idea what else I would do in the world. So that sounds like an absolutely crazy instruction. Mm. Absolutely insane. That's, that's all well and good that my inner pilot light is telling me that, right? But uh, that's not practical. And this is the real world. Mm. And so it was pretty shocking to me to see that as I started actually being obedient to the guidance that was coming from this part, this center, this center of my being, that I got off all of my drugs. I've been off of them for ten, more than 10 years now. And I started uh, working with physicians and patients in a whole new way to help reorient people towards what's possible when we are able to, you know, deepen our connection to that divine spark and learn to communicate with it and learn to be able to open ourselves to receiving instructions or to asking it for help when we are trying to make decisions or solving problems or even trying to bring into being things that we yearn for that have not yet come into being. And so, you know, part of what I'm teaching in my new book, The Daily Flame, which is a daily devotional of 365 love letters from your inner pilot light based on an email that I've been sending out daily for 10 years to 30,000 people who read these daily love letters. Um, but part of what I teach in all of those emails and in this book is that essentially your inner pilot light is your most reliable healer. This is the best doctor you're ever going to find. It's the most reliable therapist that can help you heal, heal your trauma. It's the most wise spiritual teacher helping you open the portal to real universal wisdom, like truth and kind of knowing that, you know, any spiritual teacher worth their salt is speaking from that place and speaking to it in you. And yet the, paradox so this is the part that we were talking about before we we got on will the paradox is that that kind of teaching can be misinterpreted and i think the, the whole self-help industry may, does a huge disservice by suggesting that any problem that you have or anything that you want that you don't have yet any issue that you're wrestling with can be solved by yourself and that's a very comforting message. We would really like to think that it's possible to be independent and self-sufficient, to be the rugged individualist who can do it myself. But I think that that teaching is, uh, is very potentially harmful, especially when you're dealing with people with physical illness, where if they misinterpret that message, then they hear, I caused my cancer and it's not going away, so I must be, I must not be healing myself good enough. And I think that's a potentially extremely untrue and misleading and potentially damaging teaching. 
in that it uh, it interrupts what is perhaps one of the most important things that people learn from a healing journey, which is that we're, we are not able to do it alone, and we do need to ask for help, and we do need to surrender ourselves to the mystery of all of this and really humble ourselves in the presence of something that is out of our control. And instead of like employing all of these strategies to try to run away from the discomfort that uncertainty creates, that perhaps we're better off learning to be in the uncertainty and finding tools and practices that help us feel at peace even when we're not in control. Uh, so I believe we participate with our healing, but we don't control it. Hmm. And I believe that we have, our bodies have incredible capacity to heal themselves and so do our psyches. But we also, uh, it requires us to go into territory that can be so tender that I think we often need the facilitation of a person with a high enough vibration that they can sort of entrain us into that vibration with love and compassion and the ability to witness and hold space so that your inner pilot light can heal you in the presence of somebody else who can uh, hold that compassionate space so it really is i think a paradox right and I, I think with that self-help message that you're identifying as being unhelpful in some ways it's like you can help yourself you can heal yourself is the is the message but it's like there's a subtlety to it like what does that actually mean because i'm hearing you pointing to that our ability to connect with a part of ourselves that may not always be recognized as valid or existing um, uh, the, the the quiet voice I know that my experience of, of intuition or, or the inner pilot light it's it's often not in thought it's often not noisy it's 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 it's, it, um, it's more of a knowing than perhaps a voice so I'm wondering I know in my experience I think a lot of people can probably relate listening to having the experience of not listening to your intuition or your, or your knowing and finding how that works or doesn't work. I'm wondering what you can say about how we can learn to listen better, how we can learn to open to that in a pilot light more effectively. I have several things I want to say in response to what you just said, because first of all, the inner pilot light may communicate with us in many ways, and most people have one or two ways that are easier to receive than others. So for example, some people that I know, their inner pilot lights speak to them very reliably and very clearly through a somatic response. Mm -hmm. So they can literally ask their inner pilot light any binary question, and the trick is getting the question right and not asking more than one question at a time. Mm -hmm. So for example, you wouldn't ask, uh, you wouldn't want to put three questions in the same uh, inquiry. Mm. So you wouldn't want to say, is it aligned for me to um, move to Boston or New York? You might want to say first, is it aligned for me to move from where I am? Mm -hmm. And then you might want to ask, is it aligned for me to move to Boston? And as a separate inquiry, is it aligned for me to move to New York? 
But those people that have mastered this are able to, add, if, if, to come up with the right binary questions. And they can ask their body and they get a very clear yes or no from a somatic response, a kind of body compass. And, and the trick is in asking the right question. Some people, however, myself included, because of my medical training, uh, the disembodiment of that practice of 12 years of having to deny how my body felt, like to work when I was tired and keep operating when I was hungry and not scrub out when I had to go to the bathroom and, you know, retract in painful positions where my shoulders were all tense. I, I became quite disembodied. And so the embodiment part of my journey has been one of the hardest because of that somatic trauma and that dissociation from the body. So my inner pilot light has a harder time. I, I am so jealous of the people that are really somatic because it really can be that simple. Yes, no. And the body will, I, I have two friends that are very somatic that way and it's hysterical because we'll be at a restaurant and I'm reading through the menu, like trying to decide which thing I want to order. And they're literally going through each item of the menu asking the body, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. <laughs> and their bodies are responding. So they're like twerking around like they're having a seizure. So it's, that it's, sounds like an entertaining meal. <laughs> it, that's what I'm saying. It's quite amusing. I'm, I'm, I find it hilarious. <laughs> so they're not thinking, what do I want to eat? They're literally tuning into what is aligned for my body right now, which mm. I think is super cool. So it can be that simple. Um, for me, I, I must be just pretty dense because my inner pilot light communicates to me uh, in, in other ways, often in external ways. Like, I get a lot of my guidance through synchronicity. Yeah, likewise. And I love that because it's very playful, mm -hmm. and it feels like the invisible forces of love out there are, like, messing with me. It's, like, hysterical. I have a good playing. time. They're pl it's playing. It's, like, playful. Right. Um, but I'm also a writer, so if I – I've been a writer my whole life, so I have a lot of access to that channel with the muse. And so I can, if I have a question, I can sit down and ask and literally something comes through my fingers that feels like it bypasses my brain. I'm a very fast typist mm. and I'll read something that I didn't even think. And it def I definitely didn't make it up. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very powerful kind of connection for me. And that's where the email, the daily flame emails came from as I started making it part of my daily practice to wake up every morning and say, what does my inner pilot light want me to hear today? And I realized at some point that what was coming through me w was probably helpful for somebody other than me. <laughs> and it turned out it, w it became very popular very quickly because it turned out that what was coming through me was uh, often very universal. People will read these daily emails and say, oh, my God, how did you know? That's exactly what I needed to hear today. That's beautiful. And I love the emphasis on I'm crafting uh, as ever uh, a morning routine and refining and so on. And I love the practicality and the power of that simple practice of actually asking and, and waiting to listen, whether it be through a somatic response or a synchronicity that shows up or indeed the sort of channeled writing that you're describing. Right. So I have about, I mean, I'm not kidding. I have about 30 practices like that. <laughs> that I, um, that's why I say I must be so dense because I'm envious of the people who only need one practice and they feel pretty confident that, you know, their body's yes or no is yes or no. I don't ever feel confident 
that I know for sure this is my inner pilot light and not some uh, wounded part of me or some protective part of me that's hmm. hijacking the system and pretending to be my inner pilot light <laughs> <laughs> or some kind of, you know, uh, yeah, delusional or, you know, fantasy part that is feeling like that. So, for example, when my husband proposed to me, we had not known each other very long, and this felt like a very risky move. I, I was really attracted to him and really feeling a lot of deep resonance, <laughs> but my mind said, this is a very bad idea, and... So I had a lot of resistance to getting married that early. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is a clear opportunity for checking in with, is this aligned with my inner pilot light? And so for me, I did about 10 different practices that all responded with the same confirmation mm -hmm. in ways that were hilarious. Well, I mean, it was hysterical. <laughs> like, like I said, for me, this is very playful. So I'll give you an example. And one of the practices, and I teach all of these, I created an online program uh, with my husband called Connect to Your Inner Pilot Light that is literally teaching these m many practices that I use as ways of connecting to my inner pilot light. And one of them is super fun and playful. So I was using this one after he proposed to me, and I call it Pandora Roulette. So it's... I love music, and music is often one of the ways that synchronicity will play with me. And so uh, I have an iPod. I live in a place where there's no cell service. And so I have an iPod that has like thousands and thousands of songs on it. So I'll either do this with Pandora if I'm somewhere where there's cell service, or I'll do it with my iPod and put my iPod on random. But I will literally make it a prayer. Uh, I'll make it a prayer. Like I'm I'm humbling myself before these invisible forces of love that know what's aligned for me better than my small human mind. And I'm asking for help. Help me. Help me know what's most right. And I will ask that the, that the iPod or the Pandora will be used and it will deliver me with a song that will help me to interpret the answer. So I literally, in the case of my proposal, I put my iPod on random. I put on my headphones, and the song is a song by Ben Lee that I've never even heard. I don't even know how it got on my iPod called Whatever It Is. And over and over, the song says, whatever it is, just do it. Whatever it is, just do it. They'll tell you that you're crazy. Whatever it is, just do it. And I'm, <laughs> I'm literally in tears. Yeah, right. So, but I didn't trust just that one because I could say, well, that was coincidence, right? Mm -hmm. So I invoke... A, a dozen more practices that all give me the same answer. And at the end of the day, I go home and I tell my husband, yes. <laughs> now, that does not mean, I want to be, make this clear, that does not mean things are going to go well, right? I would mm -hmm. like to have a way to um, gauge the future and make sure that I don't get hurt and that I have a promise of unconditional love and uh, and compatibility and passion for the rest of my life with this man. I, I am far wiser than that. <laughs> so, in other words, it, it may be aligned for us to get married and then get divorced. Right. So it's telling so, you that right now it's the, the right decision to move forward. Right now, this is the decision that is in the flow of the path of greatest 
uh, growth, uh, joy, I don't know, impact, purpose. Mm -hmm. Again, I won't get into the whole cosmology of why are we here? What is the point of being human? But I think it's related to that. I think there's, there is, I don't believe in destiny. I don't believe there's like a fixed outcome and we either, you know, get a gold star because we lived our, our aligned destiny or not. I think we have free will all the time. And I can choose to ignore my inner pilot light if I want to. And the times that I have, as you said, I had times where I got very clear guidance from my inner pilot light and it was not what I wanted to hear. And I overrode it and things went really bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like really bad. So I, that's why I like to joke that I used to have blind faith and now I have evidence-based faith because after 12 years of orienting my life this way and using these practices to tune into this center of my being and allow it to help guide my life, I have hundreds of stories of how unexpectedly beautiful things went when I followed my inner pilot light, even when it's told me to do things that sounded crazy, like quit my job as a doctor. But I also have a lot of evidence that when I override that guidance, that things can go really off the rails. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like sometimes I think we've been given a kind of grace period and we can get away with (laughs) violating the guidance for a while without anything really bad happening. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, and perhaps this is the, um, the way that people can be blessed by a brain tumor, for example, right? We might be blessed by the loss of a loved one. We might be blessed by a car accident. We might be blessed by uh, any number of things that our minds will label as awful. Um, but it's often what it takes to get our attention to let us know that there are actually long-term consequences to violating our guidance. And if we would prefer a path of greater ease, then perhaps it would be wise for us to learn to stop overriding our knowing. Right. And certainly as you were speaking to that, it's funny you mentioned blessed with a brain tumor because it came into my mind that my experience of that diagnosis was it was kind of like life had been trying to get my attention or my inner pilot light had been trying to get my attention and in more subtle ways such that then eventually it took the, the brain tumor to really uh, invite that shift of direction and, uh, and, and shift in how I was living my life. And I love also how you take this scientific approach um, because the, the, the cynical mind or the skeptical mind might sort of question the, the, the power or the validity of intuition or of our inner pilot light or our inner knowing. And I love how you bring that scientific approach of trying 10 different ways of uh, in, inviting that input. <laughs> and, like I said, I'm a scientist, so I like evidence. Right. And, and, <laughs> and, and of course, the evidence is also there, in fact. I, I'm uh, sure you're uh, f- familiar with... Uh, Dr. Kelly Turner and Radical Remissions, one of my favorite books. Oh, yes. Recommend Kelly and I were doing our research at the same time. When I was researching Mind Over Medicine, she was researching Radical Remission, and we were comparing notes. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Because they're, they're two books that I recommend most regularly, Mind Over Medicine and Radical Remissions. And one of the things that Kelly came to the conclusion of was that the, the commonality amongst those people that create outlier results, they all say different things or give emphasis to different 
aspects of the healing journey, but the one thing that united them all was following their intuition, following their inner pilot, like we could say, when it came to making decisions, when it came to treatment options. And you were touching also just on the need for community and, and, and connection. I wonder if you can just expand a little bit, go off on that thread in the process of self-healing as well. Yeah, well, I did a, a, a comprehensive sort of analysis of it in a TED Talk that I gave called The Number One Public Health Issue Doctors Aren't Talking About, mm-hmm. which was about all the scientific data linking loneliness and disease. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we live in a country of, in, in the U.S., I'm, I'm from the U.S., and this is a com- country that was built on the pioneering spirit of the rugged individualist. Mm-hmm. And again, that that pioneering spirit has kind of gone off the rails, I think, in the self-help world of you can do it yourself and you're all, you, you don't need anybody and you, are self, you can be self-sufficient and if you need anybody, then you're needy and that means you're weak and dependent, all these negative things. Mm. But we are fundamentally and biologically tribal beings mm-hmm. who are interdependent upon one another and if you look at any of the indigenous villages that are still in existence, you'll see more of a modeling of how we as a species are meant to be living. For example, we are not meant to be living as single parents in an apartment, in a box, with our child alone, while we're also going to work every day. And, you know, that is so not uh, a living condition that is conducive to health. Like we're meant to be living with multiple caregivers all caring for the children and swapping them back and forth and everybody getting dinner ready together and living in community with, uh, you know, with our own roles of how we're contributing, but in sacred reciprocity with one another, with nature, so that we are aware of our need of one another. And one of my dear friends, uh, Charles Eisenstein, wrote a book called Sacred Economics about how the introduction of the money system has fundamentally disconnected us from our awareness that we need one another. We think, I don't need anybody. I just, I don't need the baker. I can just buy bread, Mm. right? So once we moved out of gift economy where there was, it was obvious where the sacred reciprocity was happening and we moved into money, then we said, well, I don't need anything. I don't need others. I just need money. I don't need, I don't even need friends. I can just hire a coach, right? Mm. We've started... Uh, we've started commoditizing things that should be free mm. in a healthy community. And as a result, we've made, uh, we've made people far more vulnerable to illness. And that's just at the cultural level. But on an individual level, I think, uh, you know, th- th- this is always, it has always been that when somebody is sick, for example, or if somebody is mentally struggling, uh, that they, they will go to the healer or the shaman, right? Like we've always known that having somebody else to help hold space and facilitate a healing journey is part of the healing journey. And perhaps it's the very thing that uh, teaches something that people may not even ever learn otherwise, which is that one of the things, and I don't like to make sweeping generalizations of this illness equals this personality trait or mm-hmm. this you know, limiting belief or whatever. 
but it seems to me that many people who get quite sick prematurely, when I say prematurely, everybody's going to die <laughs> someday, <laughs> but when people are suffering with physical ailments before their, before their time, uh, it seems to me that often the illness has come as a way to interrupt a pattern of codependence or kind of overgiving sort of martyr complex where they're externally focused because of their trauma in childhood often and they're focusing on meeting the needs of the others and they're neglecting or violating or denying their own needs and so illness is the first opportunity to teach them that it's okay to be needy. It's okay to be hurting. It's okay to need support. It's okay to have somebody else make your meal for you or clean the dishes for you or take you to your chemo appointment or sit with you at the bedside and ask you how you're feeling. And for a lot of people who are ill, that is the hardest part is to be seen as weak or vulnerable or needy or dependent. And I, but I don't know how else those people would learn these lessons sometimes because it's so ingrained in people's traumas. And if we don't get to the deep trauma healing work that gets to the core wounding of unworthiness that's often at the uh, that's often underneath that tendency to overgive and deplete oneself as a way of earning your right to exist, that's a deep trauma. And so, you know, illness gives people a chance to learn that. And not, not everybody even learns it then. But I think it's an opportunity. And sometimes if people are willing to learn that and they learn, oh, my God, the only way I'm going to go through this is if I have community. And if you look at cancer survival rates, the people who have nine or more social contacts have far increased survival compared to people that have four or less. So... This is not just, I'm not just making, you know, a, a wild claim. There's, there's tons of data, and I wrote a whole chapter about it in Mind Over Medicine. Like I said, I did a TED Talk about it as well, showing some of the data uh, and, and, and demonstrating that loneliness is, is perhaps one of the greatest risk factors for disease. It's an astonishing. I mean, I still remember when I first heard that and encountered the research and data that you've presented, and it's... It, it makes so much sense and also it's so out of the box that um, its message is just un unspeakably important. And I speak to that from my own personal experience as a sort of hyper individual um, taking care of myself, uh, you know, the, the journey that I've gone through in my own experience and how important it has been to, to open up and, and yes, ask for help and be willing to receive help it feels like that receiving piece is is so important we've made giving good for, for good reasons of course we we want to be kind generous supportive members of society and members of relationships and communities and so on but there's an essential piece in there to learn to and be willing to receive and that, that feels to connect nicely with what you're pointing to with the inner pilot light you know, to receive the wisdom or receive the love or receive the um, care that's that's within us or as you point to with synchronistic phenomena can be observed as observed in the world around us I mean I 
there's just something unspeakably profound about opening up to that and being willing to receive that love and care that is is around us you know einstein had that question he, he posited i think he did actually say this from the research that i've done that the most important question we can ask is is the universe a friendly place and from a like well, a that, that was what my book the fear cure revolved around was that quote <laughs> right beautiful and i think like what you're telling us is that physiologically the data says that yes it's a very very important question that our physiology will have a response either in the positive or the negative to how we are perceiving that if we are experiencing and believing and feeling a, a friendly universe then that's great for our health absolutely and it's more fun. I mean, it's not just great for our health. Like, it's great for our creativity. It's great for our relationships. It's great for our sex lives. It's great for the way that we interface with our environment and treat nature and all of that. I mean, it's, it's built into the fundamental spiritual principle of most indigenous spirituality, which is this, like the Caro in Peru call it Aini. It's this sacred reciprocity, right? We, we, there, it's spiritual law. Mm. that we cannot give more than we receive and we cannot receive more than we give without having side effects. Mm. So I will, when I'm, I run a training program for, for doctors and other healthcare providers called the whole health medicine Institute. And most of them, because of their traumas and wounding are suffering the consequences of giving more than they receive. Mm. And they've been, they've had that spiritualized or, viewed as altruism so they've as you said they've turned it into like we're such generous giving people we we give until we're depleted and that means we're good people going to heaven or we're you know loving people who are going to be good enough or something and they're unaware that it often stems from a fundamental childhood wounding around not being good enough unless you prove your right to exist it's a very fundamental kind of trauma and so one of the first things I do with them when they come in is I say, okay, now we're all going to exhale together, but don't take a breath, just exhale. We're going to see how long we can just exhale. Right. right. And as you can imagine, this does not last very long. Sure. Pretty powerful we can't, way of demonstrating that. Yeah. We can't exhale for very long without taking an in-breath. But what makes us think in our careers, for example, that we can just exhale without taking an in-breath. And so if, I mean, my sort of cosmology is really built around this because I also, and I don't know if this is true, I really don't know how the universe works, I'm not privy to the secrets of the mystery, but it seems to me that often we can't receive until we ask. Mm. There's a humility in that. This, and I think humility is one of the most fundamental properties that I look for if I'm using my discernment to assess whether someone is someone that I can trust, hmm. right? Do they think they have it all figured out and they're very, um, yeah, almost overly confident in their self-sufficiency hmm. or their certainty, but there's a humility that comes in the, the acknowledgement of how much I don't know and how much I am not in control 
and how much I feel uncertain. And if I can lean into that feeling of uncertainty with, instead of fear, if I can instead lean into it with humility and curiosity, where I'm now asking for more clarity, I'm asking for uh, help feeling more certain, because I feel uncertain, I don't know. There's something that gets activated in that that opens the portal for me to receive. And I think of the inner pilot light as that portal. It's like now I have made that humble ask. Now the entire universe can send, like I said, it feels very playful for me, um, can send 30 different ways that I can get help. And I think the same is true in human relationships, right? So, I went through, you know what I went through a few years ago, uh, in the past few years, Will, and I just went through, I think I counted like 12 back-to-back trauma, mm. back-to-back in three years. And it was incredibly hardcore and very devastatingly painful. Mm. And I could not have made it through those 12 traumas without, being, without asking the people that I loved to help me. Mm. And I did not, I had a part that did not like doing that. I didn't have to do it through physical, well, I kind of did, the pitbull injury was one of them. But I, the level of discomfort that I felt in asking people to extend themselves in ways that felt outrageous, like it felt like I can't possibly ask that of somebody. And I had to do it over and over again. And I felt terribly uncomfortable with asking other people to extend themselves in order to help me through my crisis. But when it's, when the tables are turned, when somebody else is in crisis and they're asking me to extend myself to support them, I'm all over that. Mm-hmm. I'm all over that. I feel needed. I feel helpful. I feel appreciated. I feel grateful to have the opportunity to be in this intimate moment with somebody who's vulnerable. I feel close to them. I, I feel so there's nothing I want more than to show up for my loved ones. And I but when the tables are reversed, I was so uncomfortable, Will. I was so, ow, 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 ow. I hate this feeling. And I felt really vulnerable because I also felt like, well, what if they all reject me? Mm-hmm. But what a beautiful blessing to use your sort of blessed by a brain tumor, like blessed by trauma. It took that much to show me that I am not alone and that my loved ones are here for me and I can lean on them and I can ask for what I need and they want to help me. They want to show up for me as much as I want to show up for them. And the ones that didn't, yeah, the ones that didn't want to show up for me, they fell away and I got to see what was true. Right. And it feels like a helpful distinction that you're offering that in being willing to ask for help and receive, we're actually (laughs) in a roundabout way serving because it does feel great when we are giving so that's what i mean i Uh mean it feels to me it's a gift of intimacy Mm -hmm. right if somebody trusts me enough to come to me with something really vulnerable and painful and i'm given the privilege of having a front row seat on something that's really tender for them that is a gift of intimacy. I really got to see it from the other side, how I 
how, how I chose the people that I asked for help from. Mm -hmm. Like the people that I asked for help from were the people that I trusted. And, and I was willing to be seen at my most vulnerable. Think about, uh, I don't know what, how this has been for you, Will, but for a lot of people when they're going through treatment for a tumor or cancer, for example, uh, there's a real tenderness in like, who do you invite to the hospital with you? Who's going to see you with your head shaved? Who's going to see you uh, post-operatively when you're groggy from the anesthesia and you're puking your guts out? Like, who's, who are you going to invite if you're going to get chemotherapy? Who, who will you let see you that week? Hmm. That's tender part of intimacy. And I have wanted... I'm very aware of the part of me that wants to be viewed as always strong, always in control, always competent, always, I've always got my shit together. And so I don't want people to see me looking weak and vulnerable. And I, you were one of the first people I actually let you video me in that place. Yeah, right. That was Publicly. a powerful conversation. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. I was like, what am I hiding? <laughs> what am I hiding? I'm having a human experience of grief right now. Why am I afraid to cry on camera? I think the power so, of that for so many people watching to, and this is, this is that truth that is in my experience, I think many people reflect this, that when we are able to be vulnerable, I think the reason we love vulnerability so much is because it models how we want to be. We want to be huh. fearless. We want to be able to be ourselves without fearing rejection and so just as our receiving is service it helps people give and have that uh, gift of giving our vulnerability allows people to connect with that uh, receiving in themselves as well um, and yeah it does seem that illnesses rather compel us to uh, or traumas compel us to to receive I can I can see that still being an edge for me to continue to open to uh, to help and inviting people in to support me. Yeah, for sure. I tell you, Will, I hate that this is my conclusion because I really <laughs> like being self-sufficient <laughs> and strong and in control. <laughs> I like being perceived that way, and I I see all the ways that I. Uh, yeah, all the ways that I made bids for strength and power in the world to try to prove that I have control over life and death by becoming a doctor or by writing books that are New York Times bestsellers or giving TED Talks or whatever so that I can be perceived as I've got it all together, hmm. right? But I don't. I really don't. I still don't. Like, I'm pretty much a hot mess a lot of the time. And the people that I've allowed to see me in my, you know, out of my public role, I, I try even in my public role to let people see that part of me. But I also see where, you know, it's, uh, it's we can, we can edit that a bit. We can um, even milk that, right? I can pretend to be vulnerable so that I can get more people who read my book, right? Like it's subtle, the ways that we can kind of hide. Uh, and so going through all these traumas in the past few years, really like now I can say that the people that I'm close to, I'm really close to mm. because they saw me through some of the hardest things I've ever, well, the hardest, this is the hardest three years of my life. Mm. And they, 
stayed with me and some of them didn't stay with me. Some of them really uh, were in relationship with me because maybe they had a mommy projection or something. They needed me to be a strong mommy mm-hmm. or a strong friend. And if I was weak, Lisa, then they didn't trust me. They didn't feel safe. They're like, wait a minute, you changed the rules. You're supposed to be my pillar of strength and you're not supposed to need anything from me. Mm. And so some of my relationships that I thought were the people that were closest to me really fell away. But the relationships that survived my crisis, oh my God, Will, I'm so lucky. I'm so blessed. I'm so grateful for the people that are still here. And for the new ones that showed up during that time to uh, show me that I do deserve care and I do deserve to be taken care of as much as I've cared for others. And I have cared for others a lot. So that means this is quite exciting. I want to I reframe this because we're talking about the discomfort of receiving help. But I, I also want to reframe it. I had an epiphany about three years ago. I was kind of in the middle of some of this hard stuff. But... I had this epiphany that I, I had like a PhD in unconditional love. Like I can love anybody through anything, throw it at me and I'm on it. Like I have my capacity to tolerate triggers and work through them and appreciate the soul growth and all of that. Like I got a PhD. I'm graduating from this (laughs) crap. (laughs) But I realized I was in kindergarten, like I had not even started on giving that quality of unconditional love to all of my own wounded parts, all of the disowned, exiled parts inside of myself. And I was re-traumatizing those parts in the name of unconditionally loving other people. And I realized I had this just huge, like I saw a blind spot that I just had not seen. And I was felt embarrassed about a lot of the blogs that I had written because My blind spot is evident in some of my public writing. And I realized that I had a whole, like, I was good at giving. I was masterful at giving. And I was in kindergarten when it came to receiving. And that felt really vulnerable and scary. And I was like, oh, my God, I have only, I'm only halfway up the mountain here, if that. And there's a whole journey on my spiritual path that is about receiving. And it is about pleasure. And it's about how much ecstasy can I tolerate? How much support can I tolerate? How much mystical experiences and um, financial abundance? How much juicy sex? How much uh, having people shower me with gifts and blessings? Like how much can I tolerate? And I realized that my tolerance was extremely low. Right. (laughs) And I actually would have a panic attack. Like, really? I'm not kidding. Like, full-on somatic, like, my nervous system would fire into threat when too much abundance, too much, uh, too many blessings were hitting me all at once. And I had to go to my therapist right away. I I am regularly in therapy. I said, like I said, I'm a hot mess. I've been in therapy for 10 years. and (laughs) I'm not done. Um. And I had to go to my therapist and say, well, I have a real problem. I see that I am energetically blocking blessings because I'm too uncomfortable with having too many good things happen to me all at once. Like Gay Hendricks calls it the the upper limit. I have an upper limit. Mm -hmm. And my upper limit is pretty low. And that, like, that's hilarious. 
right? Like I'm actually blocking blessings because some part of me is actually like masochistic. Mm-hmm. Like give me the painful stuff and I can milk it for all it's worth and alchemize it into soul growth. Yeah. I but can the pleasurable stuff. So relate to that. It's an important man, distinction, isn't it? <laughs> it's part of why I'm bringing it up with you, Will, because it was such a blind spot for me. And I realized like this, this is going to be the fun part. I've done the really hard part. I took 12 back-to-back traumas and milked it for every last bit of soul growth. But I'm still working on receiving pleasure and blessings and ease and joy and light and magic and play and connection and touch and safety and yum. Mm -hmm. And my husband is my best teacher. He's a tantra teacher. <laughs> so, How perfect. <laughs> so the, and he's, he's from south of France. He's like, he's, he's from Nice. He's like the master of pleasure. Of <laughs> like, course. So I the called in the crazy. right person, yeah. right? And yeah, so, and that I think I have really needed the support of my inner pilot light to show me that blind spot, for example, mm-hmm. to reorient me so that I can have the humility to see how handicapped I've been in my life and how uh, kind of off track I've been in my overgiving. And fortunately, at least at this point, it didn't have to result in a brain tumor. Yeah, right. Um, but it resulted in plenty of other, you know, difficult traumas. And I, I definitely got the wake up call. Yeah, I hear and you. I'm on it, but I'm definitely not. There's not that I believe that there's a there, but if there is a there, I'm not there. I'm on the journey. Yeah, I'm. I'm very much. Uh, I've had the sense recently of being, of really actually just. So in some ways, I, I received the wake up call and acted on the wake up call, and a huge amount of transformation and healing and life change occurred eight years ago. But I've had a sense recently that I'm really just beginning to mm-hmm. heed that wake up call or, or really mm. uh, respond to that wake up call. And I love the message that you're offering us in this conversation because that deepening into receiving more fully, more completely, more unconditionally, um, surrendering yes to the joy and moving beyond that, uh, learning through the challenge and difficulty, um, as, as beautiful a capacity as that is, um, I hear the the call for that soul growth, for that evolution and, and giving through learning to receive more fully and being connection and so on. Absolutely. And some people have the opposite lesson that they learn. I'm, I'm again, I, I work largely with healers and healthcare providers and spiritual teachers and such. And so those people have a, a strong tendency to give more than they receive. But if you look at other, um, yeah, other professions or other um, communities of people, then some people, illness comes to teach them the opposite, right? They actually need to learn to give because they've been maximizing their self-interest their whole life. They've been very sort of focused. And I think it's I think it's a different way of responding to the same childhood trauma. So we might label those people as narcissists. Right? We might call them president in this country. <laughs> um, you know, some people alchemize, or, uh, yeah, create defense systems or protective systems around their childhood trauma. 
by um, just fully thinking of themselves and not caring about anybody else, not feeling any compassion for the impact of their actions on other people or on the planet. And this makes people capable of sociopathic behavior, of mm -hmm. um, really causing great harm to other people or to nature and not feeling any remorse about it. And so for some people, the wake-up call comes to teach them to reorient towards service. And there are great, there are great um, case studies in the medical literature of people with quote-unquote incurable illnesses who suddenly started uh, orienting towards service. I'm thinking about Andy Mackey, for example. This is a guy that was, had had like seven heart surgeries and he was taking like nine drugs for this um, severe heart condition. And his doctors had told him that if he stopped the medications, he would die within a year. And he was having so many side effects from the heart, from the heart medications that he decided this is no, worth, no life worth living. And he decided he would just save the money. They were very expensive. And he would take the money that he was spending every month on heart medications and do something he'd always wanted to do. And so he used that money to buy harmonicas for children in the public school systems. And he started distributing these harmonicas and teaching harmonica lessons in the public schools. And he wound up, he started a whole nonprofit around this. He ended up teaching like thousands and thousands of children and giving away thousands of harmonicas. And he lived, I don't know, another decade mm. um, after quitting his heart medications. And so there are lots of case studies in the, in the literature about people who oriented towards service and had miraculous healings. But my, my theory is that those are the people that were receiving more than they were giving. <laughs> because if you tell that same story to a bunch of sick doctors, they're all going to go, okay, I've got to give more. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now I've got to go teach harmonica lessons to, you know, p impoverished children. <laughs> And with that hilarity and paradox, the importance of a reliable guidance system is emphasized, right? Because absolutely, like, which one? Absolutely, the connecting with our own inner pilot light. Just, I just absolutely. So, part of my personal practice, for example, because I'm aware of my tendency to give more than I receive, is that I have a practice of deeply checking in with my inner pilot light for every request that someone uh, gives to me to help them. And in the position that I'm in, I have probably a hundred requests from people who want me to help them per day. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of joke that I've become a professional disappointer. <laughs> because I it's, yeah. yeah, like I have to disappoint, you know, 98 people a day. And these are beautiful people. I mean, they're, some of them are like, you know, hi, I'm 15 and I'm working on my school project. Can you help me with my project? Yeah. Um, I hate disappointing people. And, I, and every one of the people that I disappoint are like beautiful people doing beautiful things like you. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but everybody wants me to endorse their book, uh, help mm -hmm. promote their program, like, uh, you know, what, help them cure their cancer, like help their husband cure their cancer, like, Everybody wants something from me. Sure. And so I've had to learn how to, first of all, um, be aware of the ways that I can get hooked into giving when I'm not resourced mm -hmm. or giving more than I receive. Um, so I know, for example, that I can get hooked by my savior complex. Right? I know mm -hmm. that I can get hooked by my 
how much I hate disappointing people. I know I can get hooked by wanting to impress somebody. Mm-hmm. I know, so I, I know all these ways that I can get hooked. So I'm on to myself and I'm aware of those hooks because my inner pilot light has shown me mm-hmm. where I'm blind. And I'm sure I still have hooks that I'm blind to that I haven't seen yet, but I know a, a lot of my previous blind spots are no longer blind. So it comes down to a moment to moment practice now where Every time somebody is asking something of me, I just check in yes or no. Mm-hmm. Uh, am I, and am I resourced is part of, part of my discernment. Am I resourced for this in this moment? So when you ask me, will I do this? Yes, I get a yes. But I, I, and I really like you, Will, so it might have been hard if my answer was no, then I would have had to do the uncomfortable thing and say, you know what, I really care about what you're doing and I hate to disappoint you, but I'm not resourced for that. Yeah, right. And healthy people will support you. Congratulations. Thank you for modeling good boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. And I see it with uh, yourself and others who are in a position of uh, public, um, what, what's, I was going to say notoriety, but that's not the right word, of, of fame, let's say. There are lots of people that know that you're a powerful person with wisdom, with capacity to assist. And I see it with others in a similar position that that's a real edge and and just from a practical perspective a necessary daily practice to to learn how to consistently say no and i think i had to like i had to get to a point where it was impossible to say yes and in the beginning i was really burning the candle at both ends and neglecting my child neglecting my body neglecting my marriage like hmm. terrible self sacrifices and uh, and harm to others in the name of well, but I'm such a good, generous, loving, giving person who supports everybody who wants something from me. And I wasn't seeing the little girl that was just begging to be finally good enough. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not easy to interrupt those tendencies that we may have to give when we're not resourced. So that's a, a word that I use a lot. So when I ask, let's say I'm making a request from someone. I, I have a book coming out now. So this is a time where people that I have helped in the past could help me, um, you know, support my book launch. But I also never want somebody else to deplete themselves in order to help me. So one of the ways that I communicate with my people is I say, hey, I have a need. Are you resourced to help me meet my need? And like in my household, that's how we talk. I say, hey, I'm having a craving for green juice. I just said this to my housemate. Are you resourced to make me some green juice? Because I'm doing interviews all day. She's like, oh, yeah, I'm totally resourced to make you green juice. Thank you for trusting me with your request. Mm -hmm. And if she had said I'm not resourced, that would have been equally valid. Mm -hmm. So we're practicing in our small little community here how to ask for what we need and how to give when we're resourced. Right. So that there's sacred reciprocity and nobody's giving more and nobody's receiving more and everybody's getting their needs met. And that to me is true interdependence. Mm-hmm. Otherwise we're at risk of linking into what my therapist calls symbiotic relationships or what, what some people might call the sort of narcissist codependent pairing where one person is giving and the other person is receiving and it's out of balance. So the person who's giving too much is feeling resentful and the person who's receiving too much is, you know, not reciprocating and is often quite narcissistic. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, we don't want that. And so it's, we're all, 
really working on it on our own little community to find that that balance point of sacred reciprocity and to me that is not that is that act of choosing to live in our family community together that way is an act of global healing like how do we heal the planet well sacred reciprocity we can't take more from the planet than we give to the planet we can't exhale we can't inhale from the planet without exhaling so this and the same is true for humanity right we can't we can't be hoarding resources when others are depleted of resources mm-hmm. uh, it's not ethical it's really it's again we're talking about spiritual law here so no single human needs to have three cars i don't care how much you like cars no single human needs to have a ferrari and a lamborghini and an suv mm-hmm. uh, and there are people that don't even have food on the table right so if we're willing to trust that sacred reciprocity actually feels good. It feels good when we're in reciprocity with other humans, with animals, with nature, with the natural world, with the cosmos. Like last night I was watching the full lunar eclipse and it's just, I just was crying with the beauty mm. of feeling the connection to this moon, right? That, that living in reciprocity with the world feels better than the scarcity based need for hoarding and greed and you know fear that operates so much of our culture but now i'm getting into the territory of my other book the fear cure is like our worldview and how our worldview and our cultural conditioning is making us sick yeah it feels like sacred uh, reciprocity is a beautiful point to crescendo and complete on i want to serve your needs in knowing that you have a, a hike scheduled to <laughs> i do as part of your book launch and i want to uh thank you for giving so generously and i it's been personally uh beneficial for me a lot of the teaching and wisdom you've shared i'm going to be applying into my day today and i'm sure that's true for our listeners as well mm. and I wish you well with the launch of the daily flame and uh, people can uh, pre-order that on your website as well as all the usual places, lissarankin.com. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for being with us today, Lisa. I do appreciate it deeply. Actually, the best place to, re- to pre-order it is um, the, all the information is on innerpilotlight.com, which is the daily flame, like the, the 10 year daily email that I've been giving. So that has all of the, kind of pre-order bonuses and all of the links to all of the different booksellers that sell the book and all of that. So that's the, that's the better website for that one. Listerankin.com has all of my other, my Ted talks and my other pro- programs from the whole health medicine Institute and my blog, but so uh, we have a separate website, innerpilotlight.com. Fantastic. Yeah. And as you say, there's lots of free gifts there as well as the, the, the book available for pre-order. So people can, can yeah, I, I, I created this online program connect to your inner pilot light that is free right now. If people pre-order three copies of the books until February 12th and after that it'll be for sale. And it's, it's all those tools and practices that I was talking about for kind of seeking confirmation to make aligned decisions. So mm-hmm. I, can I close with one little reading? Please. Thank you. Yeah. Cause I just, 
So the Daily Flame is actually a daily devotional. It's, every, you know, it's written so that you could start it at any time of the year and read one per day in order. And it's, it's written as a sort of intentional journey. So it's written in the order that it's in for a reason. Mm-hmm. But what I'm finding is a lot of people are using it as an oracle, kind of like a tarot deck. Mm-hmm. And they're just asking the book to tell them what is my inner pilot light uh, need me to hear today. So mm-hmm. when I've been doing interviews for the book, I've been just sort of asking the book to tell me which one is wanted <laughs> for right. this interview. So my inner pilot light just chose love letter number 45. So I'm going to read it. Mm. My darling, did you know that no is a complete sentence? Saying yes out of a misguided sense of obligation can feel icky and sticky like wading through murky, dark swamp waters. Saying yes from a place of self-sacrifice can feel powerless and forced ultimately making you feel small, weak, and unworthy, you. Saying yes from fear of rejection or panic under pressure leaves you feeling needy, grasping, and desperate. Ouch. Saying yes from a place of pure giving light and an overflowing abundance of love, time, energy, money, and good intentions lights my fire like nobody's business. To this kind of soul-led yes, I sing a rousing course of holy hallelujahs. I give you full permission to only say yes when you mean it. Remember, saying no to others means saying yes to you. Hell yeah, your inner pilot light. (laughs) (laughs) See, I'm I'm like tickled that that's the one that got picked after our conversation today. That's perfect. And just to be clear, that was your inner pilot light that selected that rather than a logical flow on, because it was also a logical flow on from our conversation. No, I did not plan that. I just picked up the book and I opened it intuitively to where the book wanted me to read from it. (laughs) There's our playful universe once again. (laughs) That's what I mean. This tickles me. This is how I like, I laugh at life a lot because, you know, I, I did not plan that. And I haven't memorized the book, so I couldn't have even found it quickly enough if I had remembered that I had written it. Mm-hmm. But that's part of what it's like. It's like the universe starts playing with you, and it's delightful. Mm-hmm. So that's my word of the year. I always pick a word of the year at New Year's, and my word of the year this year is delight. Delight. Well, it's been a delight so. being with you today. <laughs> I'm sure it will be a delightful hike for you and uh, a delightful read for everyone to to. Oh, to thank you, dear. Time. I appreciate you, and thank you to everybody who's listening for even considering living an inner pilot light led life. It's quite courageous. It takes a lot of courage to be obedient to your guidance, because what you'll discover is that probably already getting guidance and you're ignoring it or denying it, as as you were talking about, Will, like. Like your guidance has been trying to get your attention in all kinds of ways before it has to get really extreme. (laughs) And so it takes a lot of courage, uh, which is why I think we need a lot of delight and pleasure and comfort and nurture and support and community so that we can be brave enough to actually be obedient to what we're being guided to do. So I just want to honor that I understand and I like, I get it that it's not an easy journey, but it is, deeply fulfilling and full of awe and mystery and wonder and magic. And it's, it's worth it. <laughs> my conclusion, at Amen. least for myself. Amen. And aho. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Will. thank you everybody. Thank you, Lissa. And thank you to all our 
listeners, uh, please visit loveandtruthparty.org to join our community and download or order love letters, uh, register for our newsletter, connect on social media, and even consider a financial gift at loveandtruthparty.org. Thank you to all our supporters and contributors. Together we are creating kind, conscious, courageous human community.